Amen, friends. All right, let's go. Hey, this is our last Sunday in this seri- series on contending prayer. And so we're wrapping this up today. We've been uh, in this, this is a four-week series that we've been doing on contending prayer, this idea that there are different times in life where the Spirit of God kind of presses in on us and calls us to a different type of prayer. Right? There's everyday, normal, uh, ordinary prayer, and then there's certain times where uh, things elevate, things escalate, uh, whether that be within the church or within our lives, like there's just this extra measure of weight and extra pressure happening, or in the culture, right? When, when things in our lives begin to come at us so fast that we can't, we just can't handle it, right? There's a time to cry out in contending prayer, to go to battle in prayer, when, when the world and the culture around us takes to the streets to riot, the church takes to its knees in contending prayer, there's a certain times when the Spirit of God calls us to cry out in prayer, to wage war in prayer. It's a different type of prayer. This past, this past week, uh, my family and I, uh, we had some friends that, uh, from uh, Chicago that were doing kind of the national parks tour. They're driving throughout all of Utah. They're sitting in all those parks. And so we zipped down to Capitol Reef National Park and met up with them for a day. These dear friends of ours, they're, they're a younger married couple. They don't have any kids yet. Um, and we're hanging out and our boys are, hey, if you've been around, you know what our boys are doing. All right. They're going crazy. They're climbing on mountain rocks and they're climbing trees and they're, they're hitting each other with sticks. And it's just pandemonium over here and we're but we're like we're here with our friends right we're, we're hanging out we're talking we're engaging and and there's certain times where things are happening and they, one of them will begin to cry and i know which one's crying i know exactly what's going on and i never lose focus like we're over here we're having a conversation but our friends who don't have any kids they're like wait what's wrong like, uh, do they need help are they okay and i'm like oh yeah i know yeah, yeah the one hit the other one with a stick but they're fine like listen i know that cry it's not a big deal that cry is, hey, I want my brother to get in trouble for whatever he's doing to me right now. I'm like, no, they got to figure that out on their own. That's not, listen, I'm having an adult conversation, praise the Lord, and this is like the first time in months, okay? Uh, don't worry about that. And they're like, oh, I don't know, if I, I think we should take care of them. I'm like, no, 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 they'll take care of themselves, don't worry about it. But, for those of you who are parents, you know, there is a different cry. There's a different cry. And when you hear that cry, it doesn't matter what's happening, it doesn't matter what's going on. When you hear that cry, in a split second, like everything in you shifts, and you turn, and you are on your kid in an instant, trying to assess the situation and figure out what is going on, what has happened. Man, where are they bleeding? I've got got boys, okay? That's probably what's going on. i got to stop the bleeding, all right? Don't call DCFS, I promise. It's fine. They're fine. Look, they're fine. Um, You know that cry. And there's certain times where we begin to cry out in that way. And if you think that as a dad or as a mom that you know that cry, how much more does our Heavenly Father know that cry? How much more does He know that cry? And how much more does His heart turn towards that cry to move in response? And so we've been preaching through this contending prayer where sometimes we have to cry out for ourselves, Father, I need you to restore me. I need you to strengthen me. I need you to confirm me. I need you to establish me. I don't know if I got one more day left. I I just can't keep going on anymore. I need you now. This is cry out, crying out to God on our own behalf. Sometimes we cry out for the person in our life that we love that doesn't know Jesus yet. 
I've exhausted all options, and I, I just can't. There's nothing more I can do. I need you to move. I need your spirit to stir within them, to keep them awake at night. I need you to do this. I can't do it. Contending for our one. Last week we talked about contending for our church. Father, this is all meaningless. It's all meaningless. I, I don't want to do this. If you're not going to show up, I don't want to be a part of it because it's, it's worthless. But if you show up, I know that it is so valuable and beautiful and wonderful. I, we need you. We need you to show up. And there's a certain times where you can pray those same prayers, but there's a, a different cry that rings out, and that's contending prayer. And then our last week of contending prayer, we're going to talk about contending for our neighborhoods and our cities. And even a little bit for our state and our nation. We're not going to talk so much about our state and our nation. We're going to save that actually next week. We're going to begin a four-week series on uh, the church and politics, which ought to be awesome. I'm probably going to lose my job in two weeks, and so I've got to make this week and next week count, okay? Um, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. We're going to talk about politics and how the church engages in that. But for today, we're going to talk about contending for our neighborhood in our, in our city. Each week we've, we've uh, kind of shared, we've kind of paired, um, we've kind of paired this contending prayer with a story of revival, a, st- a story of how prayer has changed things. And in the early 1820s, a young man in upstate New York, in the early 1820s, was wrestling with his faith, and he was wrestling with, his, with, with who God was and what God had for him. Am I really saved, and what does God want me to do, and what is really true? And so this young man in the 1820s in upstate New York went into the woods to pray. And in the woods, he had this unbelievable spiritual experience where he experienced the presence of God, and it radically transformed his life. In that moment, he knew that he was saved, and he knew what God had for him. He knew what he had to do, and he left that woods a completely different man, and he went on to change the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. And of course, we know who this man is, right? Probably not. His name is Charles Finney. Charles Finney. Charles Finney went on to become, he started the Second Great Awakening in the United States of America. And it began in the woods, in upstate New York, in 1821. In 1830, he entered into Rochester, New York, in 1830. And in Rochester, New York, in 1830, Charles Finney, this is kind of the beginning, this is what sparked the Second Great Awakening. In just a few short days, um, uh, over 100,000 people became followers of Jesus through the preaching of Charles Finney. The bars and the liquor stores closed down permanently. The crime rate in in Rochester, New York, dropped overnight. The entire city was transformed. All of a sudden, rather than hanging out in the bars on Friday night, they were hanging out listening to Charles Finney Finney preach. Everybody wanted wanted more of Jesus. Everybody wanted more of the Word. The Spirit was moving in power. It was this amazing, amazing, amazing thing. How did all this happen? Charles Finney's greatest critic said that called this the greatest work of God and the greatest revival of religion the world had ever seen in such a short period of time. How? How could it possibly be? Over 100,000 people. 
how, when Charles Finney was asked, man, how does this work? He said, well, powerful preaching of the gospel, of course, but the real secret is prevailing prayer. You see, Charles Finney would send a man in. His name, his name was Father Nash, Father Daniel Nash. And often there was another guy with him. Um, and they would go in before Finney ever arrived in whatever town or whatever city he was going in. And they would rent a room in that town. And they would spend that week before or month before praying for the people of that town. They would go throughout and they would get the names. They would, they would meet the local businessmen and local women in this town. They would, they would pray by name for the, the barber. They would pray by name for the, bar, for, the, for the bartenders. They would pray by name uh, for the baker. They'd pray by name for all of the different people in the town. And, and the people who would rent in this room, there's stories, there's accounts of these people who would, who would realize they've been in there for days and they haven't eaten. They don't know food. And they would hear these moans and these groans and these murmurings going on. And there's stories where they would eventually say, we got to go in there and see what's going on. And they would open the door and these men would just be laying face down on the ground, just crying out for the people of the town, contending in prayer. And Charles Finney says, that, that's how it happens. That's how it happens. Contending prayer. Prevailing prayer in the preaching of the gospel is the core of Finney's revivals. Finney knew, he understood that prayer changes neighborhoods. Prayer changes cities. It transforms cities. It transforms states and nations. As prayer leaves the church, cities suffer. And as churches grow in prayer, cities flourish. We see this play out in the Bible for the people of Israel. Famously in Jeremiah, Jeremiah recounts um, what's known as the Babylonian exile or the Babylonian captivity. You see, what, what the Babylonians would do is uh, under King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, they would come into and conquer a city or uh, a region, they would conquer a nation. And what they would do is they would find kind of the, the upper echelon of society. Who, who are the wealthiest, the smartest, the greatest influences of the society? And they would take their children, which sounds like a horrible idea. But what they would do is they would indoctrinate those kids. They would take them to Babylon, and they would show them the amazing architecture and the amazing gardens. They'd feed them the finest food. They would give them the highest level of education. And they would say, look how amazing Babylon is. And the whole strategy was to get these boys to write home to mom and dad and say, actually, Babylon's not that bad. I mean, mom, like, they treat us pretty good, like, you guys shouldn't hate Babylon because Babylon's really good. Same thing happens in Jerusalem. In uh, 597 A.D., this actually happens three times, but in 597 A.D., they move into Jerusalem, um, and they lay siege to the city. And actually, the king of, of, of Judah at the time says, you guys can just come on in. Like, I, I'm not even going to fight you. They come on in. They, they conquer the city. They take all the young boys of kind of the upper class boys back to Babylon. These are guys like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. They take them to Babylon. They begin to indoctrinate them. But you've got to realize that for a people who so much of their culture is built on this idea of sacred land. God has given them this land. This is the promised land. 
God meets with them in a localized way at the temple in Jerusalem, not in Babylon. Babylon's worshiping these false gods in a different way, and they're like, no, 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 this is not, this is not okay, this is not right. For these boys, this is such a hard thing to be stripped of everything that was near and dear to them and forced to live in this other culture. And by the end, so they do this three times. They take three different groups of people out of Jerusalem to Babylon. 20% of the culture, 20% of the, of the Jewish people are removed and brought into Babylon against their will. And of course, any young man, any young woman would say, man, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. I want to be with my mom and dad. I want to be with my, with my siblings. I want to be with my aunts and my uncles. But God says, no, no. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God calls them to live. And he calls them to live in a certain way. In Jeremiah 29, verse 4, this is a famous passage. He says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what he tells them to do. Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. And do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. All right, let me give you just three things, and then we'll be done. All right, just three things, and we'll be done. First is this. You need to realize, friends, you must realize. That God has you exactly where he has you. God has you exactly where he has you. These young Jewish boys who are forcefully taken against their will. Who put them in exile? They would say the Babylonians. You might say the Babylonians. But according to Jeremiah 29, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. God says, I did this. And, and not you, not the, Babylon, not the Babylonians, not King Nebuchadnezzar, me. I sent you. I have put you in exile. This is, might be against your will, but it's not against my will. All things, all things are my will. I've willed this to be. Friends, you might think that you moved to Utah because you got a job here. Maybe your job transferred you here. You might think that you moved to Utah because um, you loved to ski the greatest snow on earth. That's true. It's the greatest snow on earth, but that's not why you moved here. You might think that you moved here because you wanted an adventure. You wanted to hike and climb and mountain bike. That's why you're here. That's not true. You might think that you moved here because you have some family here. You might think that you live here because you were born and raised here, and this is where your parents are from, and so here you are. It's not true. You are here because a sovereign God 
has you exactly where he has you. It is his will that you are where you are right now in this very moment. And you must, you must wrap your mind around this. He has brought you here, or he has birthed you here, for his glory. For his glory. And I know Utah is a weird place. You know Utah is a weird place. Even if you're born here, you know it's a weird place, right? I remember when I moved here from Chicago almost seven years ago now, I remember the first thing I thought was, man, there are a lot of white people here. Like a creepy number of white people. I, I, listen, for those of you who have never lived anywhere else, you probably don't know this, but it's a creepy level of white, okay? It's just strange. I, I had a friend in Chicago on staff at the church that I was at there, and when I was leaving, he said to me, he said, oh, man, have fun in, have fun in Utah. You're not going to see any people like me there. And I didn't know what he meant by that. I was like, okay, Nathan, I don't, I don't know what that means, but see you later. And then I got here, and within about an hour, I was like, oh, I know what he meant by that. This place is really white. Costco has a section for conservative dresses. I don't know if you've ever been outside of Utah and gone to Costco, but that's not anywhere else. Like, that's just here. That's a weird thing. Uh, Utah has a strange obsession with ice cream, like an unhealthy obsession with ice cream. And soda? I mean, people who aren't from here, when you drive by Fizz, and you see the line down the street blocking traffic, People are like, what, in, what, what do they sell there? Crack? No, soda, sugar water. And people line up and pay big bucks for, for soda. It's amazing. I wish I had thought of it. They're brilliant. There's a healthy obsession with fry sauce. That stuff's delicious. But go anywhere else and you're like, can I have to get some fry sauce? They're like, what? You want what? It's a strange place. But it can also be a hard place to live. If you move here from someplace else, uh, you might find that your neighbors are super kind and sweet and gracious for a season. But then they have their group, and you're not a part of it. And you might find yourself a little bit lonely. And what I've found again and again and again and again and again is that people come here, and they move from Texas, they move from Florida, they move from California, they move from Ohio, wherever you may have come from. They're here for about two years. Four at the most, and they're gone. They say, this place is weird. It's hard. I don't want to be here. I want to go home. I want to go home. But friends, if you realize that God has you exactly where he has you, I believe that the call on your life, if, you, if God has called you to Utah, this is where he has you. The call on your life is to not go there for and make disciples, but to stay there for and make disciples. Utah is desperate for a healthy church. Utah is desperate for people who have given their lives to Christ. And I promise you this, the longer you stay, the sweeter it becomes. You move past all of the weird surface level things and you begin to see all of the greatness of this place. You say, this place is actually really, really sweet. And this is where God has called me. There's one church, in Davis County, there's one church for every 60,000 people. One gospel-centered, Christ-exalting church for every 60,000 people. That's about 0.005% of our county is in a church on Sunday morning. That's half of a half of a half of a percent. Stay there for. 
when Jeremiah talks to the Babylonians, or God talks to, or sorry, when God talks to the nation of Israel in Babylon, his strategy for influence is the long game. He says, take wives, have kids, give your kids in marriage. He's saying, put your roots down, plant yourself there. You're not going home. This is home now. That's what God says to the kids who are in exile in Babylon, and all they want is to go home. They say, that's not my plan for you. And friends, I'm here to tell you, for those of you who are like, man, I just want to go home. That's not his plan for you. He has you exactly where he has you for his glory. Number two, we serve our king wherever he has us by blooming where he has planted us, right? Jeremiah says to the, to the kids in Babylonian exile, he says, build homes and plant gardens. Raise your kids there. Friends, do you see every day as an opportunity to contend for the glory of God in the ordinary? In the ordinary. Are you contending for God? Are you growing your influence for his kingdom in your place of work? Are you the person in your office that has created a culture that has said, man, every, every Tuesday is like Donut Tuesday. And I'm bringing donuts and I'm letting people in the office know who I am and what I believe and that I love them. How are you creating a, a greater level of influence in your neighborhood? I love uh, Alan and Charlotte Smith. I didn't tell them I was going to do this. I'm going to pick on them this morning. I mean, they moved here uh, six years, four years ago. I think that's a four. I don't have my glasses on. Uh, four years ago from, from Texas. And every, fr- is it Friday night? I can't hear you. Sure, Friday night. Every Friday night, they put out the lawn games on the lawn. They get the grill out. They barbecue. And all of their neighbors in the entire neighborhood know party at the Smiths every Friday night. Maybe not now that he's all gimped up. But on a normal Friday, like party at the Smiths every Friday night, lawn games, grill, food. Everybody's invited. Invite your friends. We don't care who comes. We want the neighborhood to know who we are, what we believe, and that we love them. This is where God has called us. This is where he has us. And we're going to increase our influence for the gospel in this place. How are you increasing the gospel? How are you increasing your influence for the gospel in your neighborhood? Some of you maybe just moved here from a different state. Maybe some of you just bought a house. The housing market right now in Utah is crazy. You just built a house or you just moved to a new neighborhood. Don't waste that opportunity. Don't waste that opportunity. Create a new culture in your neighborhood for the glory of God. Increase your influence for his glory. That people might know who you are and what you believe and that you love them. Last one. We seek the welfare of our cities through contending prayer. Verse 7 says it this way. But seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Your work alone could be amazing, but it's not enough. You might be that person in the office who has created this amazing culture, and everybody knows that you love them, and everybody knows that you love Jesus. They know who you are. You've worked hard. You've thought well about how to 
create a strategy in your kids' lives and in their, in their friends' lives to increase your influence for the gospel. You've thought well and created a strategy in your neighborhood. Maybe, maybe you've joined the city council or the school board in order to cr- increase your influence for the gospel. You've created a whole strategy around how to increase your influence for the gospel. That's amazing, but it's not enough. Charles Finney knew that that wasn't enough. His ability to preach the gospel was not enough. Yes, every time we open the word, the power of God goes out. Every time we open the word, there's a word there for us. Yes, that's good and it's amazing, but it's not enough. We must contend in prayer for our neighbors. We must contend in prayer for our cities. We must contend in prayer. Continuing prayer is the only thing that's going to actually change our cities. Continuing prayer is the only thing that's going to actually change our neighborhoods. When was the last time you contended in prayer for your city? When was the last time that you actually said, man, I I need to cry out to God for my neighborhood? When was the last time you walked the streets of your city, whether you live in Bountiful or Centerville or West Bountiful or Layton or Farmington? When was the last time you you said, man, I'm just going to walk the streets, I'm just going to pray? Man, our friend Paul, he's here today, Paul Child, he's the the police chief in Centerville. I didn't tell him I was going to do this either. I'm picking a pick on Paul. Uh, Paul, I just read a newspaper article like a couple weeks ago. This summer, right, when everything closed down because of COVID— Paul said, I'm going to walk every street in Centerville this summer. In over three months, he walked every street in his city. Every street. 61 miles. Every day he would get up and he would just walk just to engage with the people. He had a little map and he marked it off as he went. In three months, it only took him three months to walk the entire city. What would it look like? What would it look like if we begin to contend and say, every day I'm going to walk just my neighborhood in prayer. I'm just going to walk my neighborhood and I'm going to pray for every house and every kid and every family. I'm going to pray for everything that's going on in my neighborhood. What would it look like? I want to challenge you this morning to do two things. Just two things. I want you to sit down with your spouse if you're married or... If you're single, you can do this on your own. And I want you to ask two questions. Just two questions. First question is this. How can we become influencers for the kingdom of God in our neighborhood this fall? How can we become influencers for the kingdom of God in our neighborhoods this fall? Not not someday in the future, out there in the distance, someday, maybe we'll get to that. No, I'm saying in the next three weeks, how can you increase your influence in your neighborhood or in your city? What's one thing you could do? Maybe it's creating a regular kind of Friday night party deal like the Smiths do. Maybe it's joining the school board or meeting with the city council or maybe even joining the city council and running for office. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just one family. We say, man, we're going we're gonna to go hard after this one family. We're just going to invite them over every single week, and we're going to engage in their lives. We want them to know who we are. We want them to know who we, what we believe, and we want them to know that we love them. How can you increase your influence for the kingdom of God in your neighborhood this fall? How can you do that? 
Friends, if this was true for the people of Israel who were in exile of Babylon, how much more true is it for you and me, followers of Jesus, whose citizenship is in heaven, and we live in exile in this world? Every day and every moment should be, should be to gain more influence for the kingdom of heaven right where he has placed us. Number two is this. What would it look like? Can you devote one hour a week, one hour a week, to prayer walking in your city? Like, P- Paul was an hour or two every day. Here's the bar. I'm saying down here, one hour a week. Can you get outside and just walk your neighborhood, walk in your city, and just begin to pray? What would happen? What might God do if we became a people of prayer? I said earlier, man, as, as prayer increases, as the church grows in prayer, cities begin to flourish. What would happen in Woods Cross if just the people who live here began to pray for their city? What would happen in Farmington if just the people here began to get out and walk the streets and just praying for every home, that, that, that Satan would be pushed back and that the gospel would increase, that whatever is being believed that's not true would be torn down and that truth would permeate our streets? What would happen in Bountiful? What would happen in Centerville? What would happen in North Salt Lake if we actually began to contend in prayer for our neighborhoods and for our cities? I said earlier that Utah is a weird place, a hard place to live. But I also think it's a beautiful place. And, and I want to say this, this might sound harsh, but it's true. If you are not contending in prayer for your neighborhood and for your city, don't complain about it. Because the only way it's going to change, the only hope it has, is continuing prayer. That's it. And so I meet people who have lived here, and they want to complain about their neighbors. They want to complain about the school. They want to complain about this. They want to complain about that. But it reveals, it reveals that they're not praying about it at all. You're not praying about it. Because you cannot cry out in prayer for something and hate it all the more. You can't. The people that you pray for become the people that you love. And the cities and the places that you pray for become the cities and places that you love. And you become passionate about them. And you long to see their welfare increase. Because you know in its welfare, you'll find your own welfare there too. So let us be a people who contend in prayer for our neighbors and for our cities. Let's pray to that end right now. Let's bow our heads. I just want to give you a moment where you are to lift up the neighbors around you that you know. Even if you don't even, even if you don't know their name yet. To lift them up before God. Cry out to Him on their behalf. To contend for them.
want to give you a minute to just lift up your city to the King of Kings. Pray for your mayor. Pray for the city council. Pray for the schools. Pray that God would increase their flourishing. chance to just confess to God that there are moments that we forget that we are exactly where he has us. To confess that we belong for things that in our mind we think are greater, but ultimately we know that that's not true. And to ask him to help us to bloom right where he has planted us asking to increase our influence for his glory right now. for you this morning, and I, I pray that we would grow in prayer. We've been talking about continuing prayer for four weeks now. I pray that we'd be a people who are passionate about prayer. Would you grow us and would you stretch us in prayer? Would you help us to commit to just being on our knees and contending for others, contending for our church, contending for our city and our neighborhoods? confess to you right now that it's easy to forget that you are sovereign over us, you have us exactly where you have us it's easy to long for something that we think is home but this this is where you have us our home is in heaven it's not back there someplace right now this is where you've called us to be so would you help us to live well right now more importantly, would you help us to pray well for the place that you have us. I pray these things in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.